Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, welcome to Free Association. Uh, today I'm going to be playing another interview with Matthias Desmet. This is from a couple of months ago, so it's the first one that I found, um, which is the Pandemic Podcast. I think it's about an hour and a half again, something like that. I'll play the first hour of it and see how we go. Because uh, when, when things get longer than an hour, I, I tend to think that people switch off. But um, I know from my radio station that, that uh, there's a hardcore of people that listen for an hour, but a lot of people switch off after 25 minutes or so. Um, but we'll see. I'll just I just play it through. This is from a couple of months ago, so it's a it's a it's a good conversation. Here we go. Why do so many still buy into the narrative? Does it sometimes feel like you're surrounded by people who've been hypnotized in some way? Well. Maybe you are. My guest tonight is Professor Matthias Desmet. He's a professor of clinical psychology at Ghent University in Belgium. And his observations over the past 18 months have led him to conclude that the overwhelming majority have indeed fallen under some kind of spell. Except that it's not actually a spell. There's no witchcraft here, or maybe there is. Uh, but the term for this is mass formation. And right now it's manifesting as a psychological response, not unlike hypnosis, to the unrelenting single-focus campaign of fear to which we've all been subjected over the last 12 to 18 months. So tonight, I'm going to be exploring with Matthias some of the triggers and what sustains this mass response and where this could ultimately lead us and why a minority somehow managed uh, to remain unaffected and whether there's anything we can collectively do to break this spell before it's too late. We'll be exploring how socialization, uh, isolation, a lack of sense-making, some of the background factors around free-floating anxiety and other factors, how these elements lead to mass formation and ultimately totalitarian thinking uh, as we've witnessed during uh, the coronavirus crisis. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome, on the back of our interview with Rainer Fulmick last night, a Professor Matthias Desmond, he's been a, an expert witness within uh, Rainer's uh, coronavirus committee, and we've got him here tonight to explore these important issues. A huge welcome to the Pandemic Podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. So, so this is a fascinating subject. Um, you, you, you've got a background in uh, psychology. You work as a psychoanalyst. Um, what, what fascinates me is, is, is the human aspects of this uh, coronavirus pandemic. And, and we were discussing prior to broadcasting here, you know, why so many people who um, are in the field of psychology have, have, have taken time to recognize what's going on. So um, I'd like to start by asking you the question, what, what led you to personally recognize um, what you're being told may not be right? Was there a defining moment? Did you know straight away? Uh, what led you to recognize that something wasn't quite right? Well, I immediately, from the beginning of the crisis, uh, uh, I had a feeling that there was something wrong with the, with the mainstream narrative, but I couldn't um, really uh, indicate what exactly I, I, I thought there was wrong. But I started actually, I have a double degree. On the one hand, I, I, uh, I'm a professor in, psych in clinical psychology, but uh, I also have a, a, got a master degree, degree in statistics. And in the beginning of the crisis, uh, I actually started to analyze some figures and some graphs and, 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 and some statistics on the mortality of the virus, the infection fatality rate, the case fatality rate, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, immediately I, 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 I noticed that uh, most statistics um, uh, dramatically overestimated uh, the dangerousness of the virus. Uh, and I was not alone. Uh, 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 there were several other uh, statisticians, sometimes world-famous um, uh, medical statisticians such as uh, Ioannidis uh, of Stanford, uh, for instance, uh, who also warned, uh, uh, tried to warn the people and the governments that um, um, uh, there was a good possibility that uh, the coronavirus was much less dangerous than most models claimed. But in one way or another, all these uh, uh, dissonant voices did not really have much effect. Um, uh, but for me personally, uh, by the end of May 2020, uh, it was proven beyond doubt uh, that uh, the initial uh, 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 mathematical models um, uh, 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 overestimated uh, the, the, the mortality uh, of the virus. For instance, we all know that uh, the mathematical models that uh, had most impact on the corona measures were probably those 
issued by uh, uh, Imperial College uh, in London. And um, uh, these models actually predicted that uh, by the end of May 2020, uh, uh, in a country like Sweden, about 80,000 people would die if the country would not go into lockdown. And the country did not go into lockdown. And by the end of May 2020, uh, the virus claimed about 6,000 people in Sweden, and no more than that, uh, which meant that the, that the models actually overestimated uh, the mortality of the virus by a factor of 15, and so which is huge. And the, the strangest thing for me was that uh, while uh, the, 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 the corona uh, measures actually uh, present themselves as measures that are really uh, scientifically based, that are based on mathematical modeling and stuff, uh, the strangest thing is that uh, at the moment it was proven beyond doubt that the initial models uh, overestimated the dangerousness of the virus dramatically. The, the, the measures and the approach was not corrected. It just continued as it, uh, uh, um, it just continued as, uh, as in the beginning. And at that moment for me, that was like a turning point for me, I think. I, I, I started to uh, take a different perspective then. Uh, I, I started, I switched then from the perspective of a statistician uh, to, to the perspective of a, of, a, of a clinical psychologist. And I started to wonder, like, like how is it possible that uh, uh, an entire society, even, even the world population, uh, uh, is, is, is going along with a narrative that shows so many uh, absurd characteristics. Another example of an absurd characteristic of the story was that from the beginning of the crisis, um, institutions such as the United Nations actually uh, warned, uh, warned us that um, uh, probably more people would die uh, as a cause of starvation or hunger in the developing countries uh, because of the lockdowns, uh, then uh, uh, the number of uh, victims uh, the coronavirus could claim even if no measures were taken at all. So which meant as much as that the remedy was far worse than the, than the disease in this case. And then still uh, nobody seemed to notice and everybody seemed to be focused so much on these uh, corona victims and on the, on the possible... Uh, 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 damage caused by the, corona, uh, by the coronavirus uh, that everybody continued and that people continued to be willing to buy into the story and to go along with the story, which is actually extremely strange. Uh, and um, from then on, like in, in, uh, from May 2020 on, uh, I started to try to understand uh, what psychological processes were going on in society. And it took me about three or four months, I think, it was in August 2020, because I suddenly uh, felt that I could really hit the nail and that I could say what you're dealing with here is a process of large-scale mass formation. That's what's happening. And uh, looking back, or, uh, looking back it, it, it really surprised me that it took me so long because I had been lecturing on mass formation for four years at Ghent University. So, but at that moment, I, I had the feeling like that's what's going on, and I also uh, uh, could really show uh, how exactly this process had been emerging in our society uh, and how it, uh, it, 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 uh, it uh, provoked the effects uh, that it had in our society. Brilliant. Can I ask you to very briefly define what mass formation is? Could you yes. just can you summarize? Yes, mass formation is, is a specific phenomenon uh, which uh, uh, emerges in a society if a few conditions are met. Uh, so there are, there are at least four conditions that have to be fulfilled before a large-scale phenomenon of mass formation can emerge. And the first and most important condition is that there should be a lack of people experiencing a, a, a lack of social bond, a lack of social connectedness. The second condition is that there have to be a lot of people who experience a lack of meaning-making. And these two are actually associated to each other. People are human, uh, humans are, 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 are social beings, and if they experience a lack of social connectedness, a lack of social bond, they will probably also experience a lack of meaning-making. And then the third condition is that there have to be a lot of people who experience a lot of free-floating anxiety. This means anxiety that is not connected to a mental representation. For instance, if you see a lion and you're scared, then you know what you're scared of. You, your anxiety in that case is connected to a mental representation. Um, but if it is not connected to a mental representation, you end up in an extremely aversive, negative, emotional state in which you deal with a kind of anxiety that you cannot control. So 
first condition, lack of social bond. Second condition, lack of meaning making or sense making in life. The third condition, uh, a lot of free floating anxiety and psychological discontent. And then the fourth condition, a lack of free floating uh, frustration and aggression. Uh, a kind of aggression that is. Uh, that you feel inside of yourselves, but that you cannot uh, uh, direct or aim at a certain object or cause. So, and then, uh, under these when these conditions are met, something really typical can happen in a society. When under these conditions, uh, narrative is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety, and at the same time providing a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, then there might be a huge willingness in the population to go along, to participate in the strategy. And why? Because all this free-floating anxiety, which is so hard to control, connects to this object of anxiety. And in this way, that's the first advantage. All this free-floating anxiety is now connected to, an, to a mental representation, and then, just by participating in the strategy, you can mentally control the object of anxiety. For instance, if a narrative is distributed which says that there is a very dangerous virus and that we should go into lockdown, if these four conditions are met, then there might be an extremely extraordinary willingness to participate in the strategy and the lockdowns, uh, 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 even when uh, uh, it, uh, the, 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 the narrative in itself is, is absolutely absurd. So and what happens is actually something very important. When people start to participate all together in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, a new kind of social bond and a new kind of meaning-making emerges, mm -hmm. which means that there is like a new kind of solidarity that emerges. And this makes that people switch from a highly aversive, negative mental state of social isolation, uh, interpersonal isolation, to the exact opposite, to the extremely high level of connectedness that exists in a crowd or a mass. So, and then people start a heroic battle with the object of anxiety, which leads to a kind of mental intoxication of connectedness, which is the real reason why people continue to buy into the narrative even if it's utterly absurd or blatantly wrong. <laughs> it's a kind of a ritual. It's a kind of a ritual. It has exactly the same function as a ritual. A, a ritual is a kind of behavior that people participate in to show that they belong to a group, to create a group, to create a collective, to create solidarity. And you can even say about rituals that the more absurd they are from a practical perspective, the better they function as a ritual, <laughs> of course, because then the more absurd they are, the more purely they, they become a sign that shows that they belong to a group. Uh, mm, yeah, it becomes unique to that group. But, I, I mean, just to unpack some of those things, you know, talking about free-floating anxiety in the Western world that we face, I mean, just, just take ourselves out of the present moment. Yeah, we, we've lived, we're living very busy, stressful lives. I mean, if you look at any statistic about job satisfaction, it shows that most people either dislike or hate their jobs. You know, people are listening, leading busier and busier lifestyles. People have health challenges. You know, we, we live in this very fast-paced um, consumerist world and it's it, 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 life just comes with background tension uh, uh, without <laughs> people's the burden of responsibilities that people have so undoubtedly these can this condition uh, it, it was, was is existing at a high level so, so what, what I understand is that this 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 um, uh, this this situation gives people the opportunity essentially to um, Attach like a, 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 it becomes an object of attachment, so they can therefore transfix their own anxieties onto this external object, um, which which therefore then takes away the need to actually do the inner work to, to actually tackle their own anxieties, which perhaps they haven't really got a handle on. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. These four conditions were met in our society to a high extent, of course. I don't know if you know the book Bullshit Jobs of Graeber, a professor uh, of law from a university in London, uh, who, uh, who, who studied uh, the level of meaning-making people experienced in their jobs uh, uh, in the first uh, 
in the beginning of the 20th century and uh, of the 21st century and uh, he discovered that actually 50% of the people do not experience any meaning at all. They feel as if their job was completely meaningless and also the free-floating anxiety and depression and civil uh, psychological discontent. In a country like Belgium, 300 million doses of antidepressants were used each year. 300 million doses on a population of 11 million people. You it's unbelievable. It's, it's, uh, so these conditions were definitely met. And, and indeed, um, uh, uh, as you say, uh, when people can indeed connect their anxiety to a false representation because the real origin or the cause of their anxiety was not this virus, they were already anxious. They were already confronted with a lot of psychological discontent. But then there was this virus narrative which allowed them to connect it to a representation and in a symptomatic way for a certain period of time this corona narrative allows them to deal in a less painful way with their anxieties mm -hmm. it's a symptomatic solution which and all symptomatic solution in the end become highly destructive and the real solution as you say uh, as you said uh, would be to start to think altogether how we ended up in this terrible state of social isolation, of uh, lack of meaning making, of uh, free-floating anxiety and of uh, all this frustration and aggression. That's the real question we should ask ourselves from what in our view on men in the world, what in our society uh, made that we ended up in this, uh, in this uh, problematic uh, psychological uh, conditions? Um, these are big questions, those are really important questions, because actually if you look at, you know, the background discontent, for instance, you know, in the United Kingdom, we've been through um, Brexit, which was hugely divisive. You know, that's just one example of um, something that's created background discontent. But if you take that issue off the table, but look at how the media operates, full stop, you know, the media has become increasingly... Um, uh, partisan is increasingly uh, polarizing, and as a result, you know, this is prior to the pandemic. You know, so it, 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 it divides society, and, and, and you know, these, these, these. To me, when I, I will come on to the talk with this later, is that you know, how do we move forward? Is the big piece from here? Because you're absolutely right. We're not asking those questions. What's it's, 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 this type of conversation is fascinating because it helps us understand not just the problem, but some of the root causes of the problem. And as you know, we were discussing offline, prior to 2020, I spent most of my time in entrepreneurship, innovation. And one of the first things we look for is what is the problem and then what's the root cause? Because once we identify that, then we can start to look at solutions. And I think this, 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 this for me, this, these are big issues. You know, the, 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 mm -hmm. the, the preconditions are massive issues, but unsurprisingly have created the foundation uh, for this mass formation. Now, what, what does mass formation lead to and, and, and how has this manifested over the last uh, 18 months during the, the, the coronavirus pandemic? Yes. Um... So the first, one of the most important effects of mass formation is that uh, it leads to, to, uh, to a, a very narrow uh, uh, field of attention. So meaning that people seem to be only able to, uh, to be aware, both cognitively and emotionally, of a very small part of reality uh, uh, to, uh, uh, on, on which... Uh, the, 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 the mass narrative focuses their attention on. So that's something extremely problematic. For instance, you see this in the fact that uh, people in one way or another uh, only seem to be sensitive uh, emotionally uh, for victims uh, uh, of the coronavirus. And then, and then all the, the other victims, uh, children who, star, who, who, who risk to starve, uh, who, um, um, yeah, people who lost their jobs, people or uh, treatments that were delayed, uh, and there was huge collateral damage. But in one way or another, it never had the same effects as the uh, as the damage caused by the coronavirus. So it's extremely problematic. The field of attention is so limited that it seems almost impossible to provide arguments that are uh, uh, in, in conflict with the, with the with the narrative because. All the arguments that you can raise rationally against the narrative, they do not fall into this small field of attention that, uh, that, that, uh, that is really uh, uh, accounting for, for, for people in the mass. So one of the most important effects is that people are the, the, the attention is focused, just like in hypnosis, it's focused on a small part of reality, and 
people uh, are even not aware of the things that are usually extremely important for them in a normal state, like their psychological and physical health, their wealth, their well-being, and so on. In a, in, a, in a condition of hypnosis or mass formation, you can take all these people away, you can take all these things away of people, they won't even notice it. It will seem as if they don't notice that they lose a lot of things that are personally important to them. In hypnosis, this, this is very clear. And you can, by a simple uh, hypnotic procedure, you can make someone so insensitive to pain that you can cut straight to his flesh that even you can carry out, uh, perform surgical operations in which you cut straight through the breastbone. It's very strange, but a, a, a simple hypnotic procedure uh, in which the, the hypnotist focuses the attention on something positive, for instance, will make will often make people completely insensitive to physical pain. And in the same way, they are also insensitive to psychological pain because they are, if their attention remains focused on the solidarity and the, 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 the shared narrative, uh, they will not notice that they are losing uh, uh, the, the, the wealth and the well-being of themselves, even their children. Uh, um, um, you will, people will be able to take it away without uh, the population noticing it. So that's one of the most problematic effects, which was also described when the totalitarian states of the first half of the 20th century emerged in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. One of the most striking observations was that in a strange way, uh, all these people seemed to be willing to really sacrifice everything that was precious to them, uh, as if they didn't notice it. And then Stalin, for instance, he liquidated 50% uh, of the members of his own uh, communist party. Uh, and the strange thing was that uh, these, uh, these uh, uh, communist leaders uh, even uh, did not uh, object or did not protest. They, they accepted uh, uh, their, uh, uh, the death penalty as if they, 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 they admitted that they had do, done something wrong, but while they actually haven't been doing anything wrong. Uh, so uh, um, uh, the, 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 the strange way in which people are insensitive to personal losses uh, is one of the most striking consequences uh, of, uh, of, uh, of mass formation and also shows that actually mass formation does not lead up, is not that you cannot compare the emotional insensitivity uh, that manifests during mass formation uh, with a kind of ordinary egoism. It's something completely different. People are not egoistic at all in the masses. Uh, on, to the contrary, they are willing to sacrifice all their in individual uh, 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 freedom and all their uh, uh, individual advantages uh, uh, in favor of uh, the collective well-being and uh, uh, of, the, of this new kind of uh, extreme solidarity. Um, well, absolutely. I mean, I've spoken about this on the podcast before. It's this, it, well, I describe it as radical collectivism or fundamental collectivism, which, which I believe is, you know, we'll, we'll come on to talk about this. It becomes a precursor to totalitarianism because you're absolutely right. It becomes, of course, you know, excess. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's such excess uh, bias towards collectivism that we forego individual rights. And uh, there were some fascinating papers written during the pandemic, um, one, I think, in Arizona, one in New Zealand, talking about how the moralization of policy does exactly what you've just described. That, you know, people could lose out on their education, they could lose their job, they could lose their homes, you know, they could be you know, miss out on a major life-changing uh, health, health uh, diagnosis and willingly accept that for this collective interests of protecting one another or or you know doing this for, for together for society and you, you, the governments clearly in the uk have, have, have recognized this you know it's all about you know protecting one another save the nhs and all these different things which which give people not only a sense of solidarity but a sense of meaning and a sense of higher purpose which actually, as you described, is something that was missing. And I've, I've also identified that many of the policymakers now, um, of course, there's businesses that are profiting from this situation right now, and they, they obviously don't want the situation to change uh, because they're, they're gaining significantly financially. But I think a lot of people are gaining psycholo psychologically because they get a sense of purpose. I think for a lot of the politicians, no, they, don't, no. they, don't want, they don't want to go back to their normal day job. No. You know, they're, they're happy operating in crisis mode because it gives them a sense of purpose. Yeah, that, that's, that's one of the hidden secrets of this, of this crisis, that nobody wants to go back, or most people don't want to go back to the old normal. So if 
we try to wake people up, we should avoid giving them the impression that we want them to go back to the old normal because they don't want to go back to the bullshit jobs. They don't want to go back to this terrible state of anxiety. We should try to show them and try to, 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 to show them that there are other ways to change this old normal. That's the most important thing, uh, uh, I think. And indeed, politicians, well, they were losing their grasp on society before the crisis, and now they have a, they have a narrative uh, uh, which allows them to to give direction to society again, to be true leaders again. <laughs> so all these kinds, all these factors together uh, make that uh, that that uh, that uh, that uh, it's impossible at this moment to uh, to go back to the old normal. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, I just want to touch on another piece before we move on, but uh, you know, in, in the sense of this. You know, I consider myself, you know, I started this show back in October, we've probably done over 300 episodes now, really just to start asking the questions that most seemed unwilling to ask. But as a consequence, you know, I've had to suffer an all, all manner <laughs> of abuse and uh, insults, um, accusations. Yes. Um, you know, I, I truly believe I have a solid heart and, uh, uh, and live with integrity, but I've had to be, I, I've endured all kinds of... I know what you're talking about. Insults. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I know I'm, not, I'm far from alone, you know, and even people who question things privately, and I know many of my audience will, explain, will, will experience this frustration. I've heard stories uh, from, from as close people in my team who have who, who separated from their loved ones, uh, they've fallen out with family members, they've lost friends, all because they're asking different questions. Um, and, and even if those questions lead to very profound uh, different answers to what we're seeing in the, um, the mainstream media, people are just rationally un unwilling to, to, to tolerate it. Could you comment on that piece here? Because yes, I, I think for a, lot, a lot of people on an individual level are, 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 have lost, you know, fallen out of people. And it's very hard. You know, it, it magnifies the issue, really. Yes, yes. Indeed. One, one, one characteristic of mass formation is that it makes people extremely intolerant for dissonant voices, for other voices. And actually, we can easily understand that if we know that these uh, other voices, these, 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 these different voices, threaten uh, 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 to wake people up and to confront them again with these problematic conditions before the mass formation existed. So meaning that if someone tries to convince someone that uh, uh, the, the, the corona narrative is wrong or that the mass narrative is wrong, uh, uh, then the people feel that he, he is at risk of waking up. And in that case, that he will be confronted again with um, uh, the initial uh, free-floating anxiety uh, and the, the lack of social bond and stuff. And so that's one of the reasons why people are highly intolerant, uh, 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 that the masses are highly intolerant for uh, dissonant voices. Uh, second one is, of course, that actually uh, it's far more easy for someone who is uh, in, in, in a, a hypnotized or grasped in the, in the process of mass formation to, instead of believing the one who tries to convince him that the story is wrong, it's far more easy to direct all this free-floating frustration and aggression that existed before the crisis to this uh, 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 dissonant voice. That's exactly what happens. In, in a mass, people constantly, uh, masses tend to commit atrocities as if they perform uh, uh, by trying to destroy the dissonant voices um, uh, we actually protect the collective, and that's true to a certain extent. They don't realize it, but that's why they, they, it feels to them as if they, it's something like a holy duty to, to uh, a sacred duty to, uh, to, to, uh, to be cruel to dissonant voices, and at the same time, uh, they protect the collective, but also they channel all this uh, free-floating frustration and aggression. Uh, they concentrate it on one point, and in that way, they satisfy uh, a certain need uh, 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 to, to, to channel frustration and aggression. So, uh, but indeed, uh, Gustave Le Bon already described it somewhere in the 19th century that one of the major characteristics of the masses or the crowds, the intolerance uh, for uh, 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 people who do not go along with the masses, and they they want everything, everyone to to, uh, to be part of the masses. Uh, uh, and at the same time, it's very strange, at the same time, they will usually not really destroy their last enemy because they need enemies. Mm -hmm. So the masses can only exist if they 
have an enemy, if they have an object of anxiety. That's something that was very well described by uh, Orwell in uh, 1984, uh, um, uh, uh, where, he, where he talked about the Eurasian warrior who was a constant threat, but nobody actually knew uh, whether he really existed or not. Uh, but but uh, the masses in the totalitarian system always have uh, uh, have to invent new enemies, new objects of anxiety, because if there would be no object of anxiety, the masses would not have a reason to exist, because one of the main reasons is the, the controlling anxiety. So, And the leaders of the masses feel that uh, if there would uh, uh, be no object of anxiety anymore, the masses would wake up, and what would they do if they wake up? The first thing they would do is kill their leaders. <laughs> that may as that's something typical because then when they wake up, they start to realize uh, uh, the losses they, 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 they suffered while being under the process and they will blame their leaders for, the lo for their losses. That's typically what happens. Uh, mm -hmm. also describes that. He says everybody who uh, puts himself in charge of a mass better prepares um, uh, uh, to be killed by them. Um, well, I, I would like to hold that thought and come back to that because I think that's something I'd like to come to towards the next phase of the conversation because uh, undoubtedly people will think, you know, where are we in the cycle? Because at some point I do think that that moment will come um, where people will suddenly realise all the sacrifices they've made were, were made in that, you know, were, were, were made uh, needlessly in many ways um, and, and the, the great, great loss. Uh, personally and collectively, to be quite frank, because what I what I don't understand about the collectivist mindset is that, and I've said, you know, my followers who've been watching this all the way through will hear me say this over and over again: you can't save the entire forest by protecting one tree. You know, we're, we're happy to become collectivist around COVID cases, but simultaneously allow the economy, education, uh, the healthcare system to basically flatline. Uh, and I say, I say, what is collectivist about that? You know, allowing society to collapse. Um, it doesn't feel like a very collective uh, methodology to me, but that, that again, that's rational thought. Uh, it's, you know, it's, 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 it, they're not operating rationally. Am I right? Yes, it's, it's, it's completely irrational, and that's, that's something very strange. And so uh, uh, that's exactly, I, I think that's a consequence of, uh, of, this, um, of this narrowing of the field of attention. Uh, yes, people, see, people seem to be aware of only one small part of reality, and, 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 and the way in which, and, and, and as a consequence, all the decisions uh, uh, are made as if only that part of reality counts, so and all decisions and all measures are really disproportionate. That's something that was so typical for the totalitarian systems as well. Uh, um, it's a really imbalanced, disproportionate uh, way to deal with reality. Um, uh, yes. But that, that, that difference between a totalitarian states and classical dictatorships is something really important. As soon as you understand that, you understand the power of the masses. And so like a classical dictatorship, in a classical dictatorship, the population obeys the dictator because they are scared of him. That's all. <laughs> but in a, in a totalitarian state, people are hypnotized by the, by, the, by the totalitarian leaders. And they are, in one way or another, this makes that uh, the totalitarian state uh, behaves in a completely different way than a classical dictatorship. For instance, uh, if in a totalitarian state, if in a dictatorship, a classical dictatorship, uh, the opposition is silenced, if there is no opposition anymore in the public space, then usually the dictator becomes milder. He becomes, uh, he becomes friend friendlier because he understands that he has to create uh, a positive image in the population in order to, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to remain their leader. And in, classical, in, a, in a totalitarian state, some, exactly the opposite happens. As soon as the opposition is silenced, as soon as there is no opposition anymore in the public space, then the totalitarian system becomes really crazy and starts to commit its most absurd atrocities. That was the case in 1930 in the Soviet Union and in 1935 in Nazi Germany, actually. As soon as the opposition was silenced, the totalitarian system becomes, to use the words of Hannah Arendt, it becomes a monster that divorces its own children. And, and then it becomes radically absurd. It starts to... to, 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 to 
to uh, to destroy uh, uh, everyone, no matter whether they are loyal to the system or not. And so that's something extremely important. As a, the, the difference between a classical dictatorship and a totalitarian system is extremely important, and it shows us one thing, one central, quintessential thing in this crisis. We have to continue to speak out because if the opposition is silenced, then the hypnosis will become even deeper than it is now and then the masses will start to commit atrocities. That's so typical. It has History has shown it time and time again. It's quintessential that people continue to speak out. They will not be able to stop the process of mass formation but they will be able, they will prevent the, the hypnosis to become so deep that uh, uh, atrocities are committed. And, uh, well, so, so I think usually uh, in, a, in a process of mass formation, there are three groups. There are always three groups. There is one group, only a, about 30% of the people is really hypnotized. That's something strange. And also in a totalitarian state, only 30% of the population is really totalitarian. Mm-hmm. There is a second group of about 40% who usually does not go against the, the, the mass or the crowd. So they also they follow the crowd and in that way there is a group of 70% who is going along with the system or with the masses. And then there is an additional group of about 30% who is also not hypnotized and who tries to speak out or to do something. Mm. And that group is extremely heterogeneous. It's of all political backgrounds, of all socioeconomic statuses, of all ethnic ethnic, uh, uh, groups. It's very hard to define what that group is, this third group. But this third group is usually also about 25 or 30 percent. So if this group could really unify, as soon as this group is really one group, as soon as this group finds a way to really identify with each other, the crisis is over and the mass formation stops. That's uh, the challenge. Well, the, the, I mean, there's, there's some really fascinating distinctions. I think the first important one is the distinction between totalitarian, totalitarianism and dictatorships, because a lot of people are saying, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we uh, overturn this? Uh, you know, in a classical dictatorship, it's very simple. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's usually one clear leader, and they've probably got um, comrades alongside them, but, but clearly there's a, there's a clear focal point. But, but what we're experiencing is something a bit, a bit different to that under this uh, almost totalitarian global regime, but we'll, we'll perhaps talk more about that in a minute. The next piece is around this this breakdown, almost 30% seemingly indoctrinated uh, and, and perhaps won't change their mind no matter what you do. Uh, but perhaps this 40%, they follow along but could be swayed, maybe more neutral. And then the, the, the 30% who are uh, more rebellious or, or, or dissenting, um, which leads to my next question really is, is, is why are some people uh, apparently not affected by mass formation? You know, if we look at those like myself who are questioning um, and uh, actively seeking to create change, you know, that, that 30% rebel group effectively, uh, why, are, why, why are we not affected by mass formation in the same way? Uh, that's a very, very good question. Um, many people have tried to answer that question. And usually everybody... Or, most, or, or, or almost always people fail to, to give a real answer. I think in this crisis, whether you buy into the story or not, whether you're hypnotized or not, has a lot to do with your broader ideological preferences. Like I feel that uh, most people who really go along with the narrative now and who are really identifying with the narrative uh, have no problem at all with a very mechanistic biological reductionist view on man and the world so i think i think that most people for instance uh, are convinced that uh, vaccines are the best way to uh, boost your Im- uh, boost your Im- immune system and so on so i think that most of the people who really go along with the narrative now are people who feel good with the more with the broader ideology the biological reductionist even the transhumanist ideology uh, that is seizing uh, uh, the population now, because I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, uh, um, if we 
if this process continues, we will end up uh, in a transhumanist uh, society, or, or they will try to reorganize society uh, according to the ideals and the principles of, uh, of transhumanism. Um, uh, and I think that, uh, I, as far as I, I think that 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 people who who uh, uh, who, who object and who who, uh, who protest and who uh, who uh, who are not sensitive to the mass formation now that usually. They are people who, uh, who really uh, have an aversion for, uh, for this, uh, this biological reductionist ideology. That's my two-cent word opinion. Uh, um, do, do you think, linked to your previous point around the kind of background factors, is, is it possible that perhaps those who are um, more inclined to be indoctrinated or, or fall under the spell of this kind of mass formation is it possible that they potentially have higher levels of background anxiety uh, and, you know this idea of biological reductiveness uh, into vaccines you know uh, i made a comment on a um, there's an american um, spiritual leader who, who was commenting on the situation and i said is it possible that people's erosion of faith is what's leading to this almost dogmatic ideological um, savior-like response when it comes to vaccines they want to place their anxieties into this uh, external solution you know as, as a vehicle to, to overcome their in, inner anxieties is it possible that this group have potentially a higher background level of anxiety and also to comment if you will on the, the you, you know the, there's a marker of intelligence i believe is you know the people you would you would expect you know the most educated most academic seem to be the ones that uh, are most compliant with the ideology yes. uh, both of these points fascinate me Yes, of course, of course. Yes, um, uh, that was something that, that was already mentioned by Gustave Le Bon in the 19th century in his book, uh, The Psychology of the Crowd. Uh, he, he, he writes that actually uh, the higher the level of education, the more sensitive people are to mass formation, usually, and of course, not always, usually. And also the level of education and even uh, the level of, uh, of intelligence, actually, uh, uh, the level of intelligence, for instance, uh, highly educated and highly intelligent people uh, uh, become exactly as intelligent uh, uh, as everybody else in, a, in the masses. It is something very, very typical for mass formation that everybody becomes equally intelligent, which usually means extremely stupid <laughs> in the masses. And people, as soon as someone is seized by, by, by mass formation, he usually loses all capacity for critical and rational thinking. That's something, some, one of the most uh, characteristic, uh, uh, most salient characteristics of, of an individual uh, uh, that is in mass formation. Um, um, uh, so, and then, then yes, well, uh, what about the level of anxiety is maybe does the level of anxiety play a role uh, when it comes to being sensitive for uh, mass formation? I'm not sure about that. Mm -hmm. uh, because I feel that many people who uh, uh, are not sensitive for mass formation now are also very anxious, but their anxiety is connected to a different object. In, yes. one, year, in one way or another, uh, it, it's not attracted by the object of the virus. For instance, in my case, from the beginning, I've never been really anxious for the virus. Never. I, I, I don't know why, but I've never been really anxious for the virus. Maybe at some moments, a little bit at the beginning, I don't know. But, but, but from the beginning of the crisis, I had the feeling that there were social dynamics that were emerging and, and uh, that were emerging that could be that could potentially be very risk, uh, risky and that potentially could be very dangerous. And in the first weeks of the weeks of the crisis. I wrote an opinion paper already warning that this dynamic showed all characteristics of the first steps of the emergence of a totalitarian state. And I was anxious too, but I was anxious for these uh, uh, social consequences and not for the virus. So in my opinion, it could be that the general level of anxiety is higher uh, prior to the crisis uh, uh, in the people sensitive for mass formation, but I'd rather think that it, it has more to do with a tendency of an inclination to connect your anxiety to a certain object. I think that's more important here. Um, yes, um, uh, that's, that, uh, that's really interesting. Um, uh, now, uh, linked to this 
part then, um, you know, there's this concept of emotional intelligence, which Daniel Goleman has written about. You know, I think there's perhaps a level of emotional intelligence as opposed to, you know, the traditional IQ that perhaps plays a role. Have you looked at any aspects around that? Because it feels like the, the, the more people are emotionally aware are able to have that intuitive connection. A lot of people I speak to who have perhaps questioned the narrative have have, have, even if they didn't realize it at the, at the beginning, say that something in, in their gut, something intuitively didn't feel right. And I think that's having that ability to tune into one's intuition is perhaps a, a marker. You know, I think that's very difficult to, to, to study. But would you say that plays a role? I doubt it also. I don't know. Okay. I know a lot of emotionally sensitive people who are now so much into the story, into the game. Okay. Yes. And, and I think it has a, for instance, it might have a lot to do with the, the balance, the internal balance between uh, individualism and collectivism. Mm. Like, uh, like, so, so the, What's really characteristic of the emergence of the of the, the 20th century masses was that it were all people who were socially atomized, who were socially who felt socially isolated, disconnected, and then in one step switched from extreme isolation to extreme the extreme connectedness of the masses. Does emotional intelligence has a lot to do with it? Perhaps want, to, perhaps, want to, perhaps want to explore. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting. It's just an observation, I think. Um, uh, All right, that's probably the place to stop that that video. Um, I've banned the idiot who was uh, using ra a racist name. Basically, I don't want him in here. Um, so he's banned. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I don't think there's anything else really. I'm going to jump into the old man's podcast for 20 minutes, see what's going on in there, and then I've got some laundry to do. So I think that's probably it for today. Um, I'll maybe come back on again this evening and finish this off. There's another 45 minutes of this video to play. So I might do another show later on this evening just to get that in. And I've got to get another the other half of the Catherine Austin Fitz video onto a podcast at some point as well. Hi, Spicoli. Welcome to the room. Um, how are you doing, my friend? Hope you're doing all right. Uh, I've just kind of finished playing a video. If you want to, if you want to jump on and have a chat for ten minutes, you're welcome to do that. Uh, I've, I've not got all that much going on. I'm just kind of chilling. Uh, I found a good a good video to share, so I, I just I just share them when I find them now. Um, all right, cool. It's all it's all good, man. It's uh, it's all fairly relaxed at the minute. All right, no bother. Uh, I was just I was going to close it close it up, but uh, all I'm really doing at the moment is the radio stuff. So I've got a couple of shows a week on Revolution Radio uh, that I post on the podcast on a Tuesday and a Saturday. So I usually post them the following day or sometimes the day after. Uh, so there'll be, here we go. Yo. All right, Spicoli, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right, man. How are you? I'm good. Are you in the Christmas spirit? Uh, not not at the moment. <laughs> still a bit. I'm of... still waking up, drinking coffee. All right, fair enough. Yeah, give me give me a couple hours, and I'll be in it. All right, it takes me till the twenty fourth of December, but uh, I'm a, I'm a wee bit cynical. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my, that's a, that's about me. Give me about the twenty fourth, and then I'm ready. Yeah, I'm about I'm about at that point. So I'm just kind of building up to it a little bit, but I'm I always uh, I resist Christmas until about the twenty fourth. 
Yeah, my, my sister-in-law came down and her and the wife decorated the house and all that. I mean, it looks nice. It's, it's nice and all, but I, I'm not putting all this stuff up, you know. I'm, I'm not going to be the one stuck put, putting this shit up. No, I think it's different if you've got small children. If you've got small children, I can understand why people would do it. But uh, once once you get past the age of about seven or eight, or maybe ten, I think it's uh, it's not all that necessary after that. Yeah, when when the kids were little, now I'd put up lights and do the whole front yard. You know, I did the whole thing, but they're grown, so. My days of doing that shit are over with. Fuck that shit. <laughs> yeah, man. Not climbing ladders anymore, and, and oh hell no, that that was a pain in the ass. I I, I haven't thought about that and fuck man forever. That is fucking that is absolutely pain in the ass. Putting the lights out, climb the ladder, and then the fucking light bulb breaks, and then, oh man. On and on. Yeah, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't do the cards thing, I don't really do the lights thing. I was at a Christmas party yesterday, up at the, the soup kitchen around the corner from me, and they had a, they had a brass band playing, and, uh, burgers and I think they were playing bingo as well at some point or doing a raffle but it was all was all a bit too festive for me it's a bit of overkill and they went all out huh yeah they do they do because it's uh it's all the people who use the soup kitchen plus all the volunteers so there's a, there's a lot of people around and there's 150 people a night they're feeding up there that's cool, man. That the to feed the homeless. That that's a good. That that's always a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really nice setup. It's been around. That soup kitchen's been around for thirty-five years. Oh yeah. So they're well established, and I'm I go I go up there most nights. But uh, it's it's just got a good vibe to it. It's a good community. You can feel the love when you walk in there. All right, man, right on. That's that. That's what it's about there. See, that's Christmas every night of the week. You don't need one, one particular day. That's Christmas no. right there. That's, that's how it's supposed to be. Exactly. Yeah, you don't need one night of the one night a year every day. Help, help the. The folks that, that are down on their luck. Yeah, it's a, it's a three course meal as well, man, they do up there. Yeah. So, I forgot, uh, where, what, what, uh, country do you live in? I'm in Britain, I'm in the UK. Oh, the UK, okay. Yeah, man. I didn't think y'all had, for some reason, I didn't, I thought y'all didn't have a homeless problem. I don't know why I, I was. There's a little bit. There's, there's a few people on the street, but there's not that many. They got, everybody got put in hostels when the, when the, the whole coronavirus thing kicked off. They took everybody off the street. But there's a few people are, are, are back sleeping on the street again now. Where did you say they put them? Where in, in hospitals? In uh, hostels, they've got homeless. What is that? So you go from if you're sleeping on the street, you're probably going to go in, into a hostel with other people who've been on the street initially, and then then uh, all the social services will find you somewhere to live after that. Oh, okay, I, I got you. That's usually how it works. So you, I don't know how long people spend in hostels, but. Uh, it's like a halfway house type deal where you're in a you're in a dorm with people rather than having your or, ha, or maybe have your own room but but sharing facilities with people. Right, right. 
Well, the tension uh, that's very there's a lot of lot of drug stuff going on in the hostels. So I know I know a few people who've been sleeping on the street fairly recently, and uh, some of them prefer to be on the street than be in a hostel. Quite honestly, they do what they want to do when they want. How? Yeah. Get drink if they want to drink. Do drugs when they want or how they want. You know, they don't have to sneak around. Yeah, that's it. Um, so, so all, so a lot of the people who, who prefer to have their own space rather than be sharing with people are, are likely to end up back on the street at least for a while. But it's too cold now anyway. It's too and cold sleeping outside. That's what I was going to ask you. Man, I, I had a friend of mine, Caps. You know Caps, right? Yeah. You know, Caps is. He sent me a picture. And man, it, it was, it was pretty, but it was, man, that's, it's too much fucking snow on the ground. It was like fuck four or five inches of snow on the ground. There's yeah. no way I'd want to be outside in that shit. Yeah. We had a week where there was, where there was a covering of snow. Oh, no, I don't, I don't want any part of that shit. Yeah, there's still people sleeping out though. There are still people sleeping out, but but I think they 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 get there's people patrol. There's like the there's the two or three organisations that do a patrol because they know where people are sleeping. So they'll they'll take them take them a sandwich and a hot coffee or whatever first thing in the morning, make sure they're still alive. Wow. And kind of try and persuade them to to go into a hostel. I know there was a, I live right, I live by the railway station. I live not too far away from there. I know that at one point there was a, a woman sleeping in the, in the churchyard just around the corner from here and, uh, doing a, a begging during the day, but, but, uh, sleeping in, sleeping on a bench in the churchyard. And she, she was on a, on a list for people to, to check how she was doing. So I think there's, there's a out like the outreach teams always will. There's particular places in Newcastle where people sleep under the under the railway arches, and there's a hotel that's got pipes on the outside, so at least it's, you've got a, you've got warm hot water coming through. It keeps it a little bit warmer. Uh, yeah. 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 So if you can get a good spot where you've got hot water pipes on the outside, then you're going to be all right. But it's a bit too cold to be anywhere else. Yeah, I bet so. Man. I don't know how those guys do it, man. The guys and girls that, that want to be homeless, that live uh, here in the States, that live up in the northern part of the, the states, you know, where it gets real cold. I live down in the south, so it doesn't, I mean, it gets cold, but nothing like up north where it gets, you know, down into the 15 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, that, that's fucking cold. Yeah, man. I think and, and they do it. They, they stay out in it and, and, They'll, they try to go around and pick them up, like just like y'all were doing in the UK, and try to get them in so they don't freeze to death. And some of them just don't want to. They they want to stay out there, and they have their community, their own little communities, you know, of the homeless. And it, it's amazing how they how they how they survive. Yeah, I mean a lot of it. If, if when people are using drugs and shit, it's basically just to counter the cold a lot of the time. You've got to numb yourself to to stay out in it. I think I think that's basically the the policy is the the drunker and more wasted you are, the more likely you are to survive. Yeah, they're, they're, most of them are all fucked up on on drugs or drunk. Yeah, Newcastle is a. There's a spice problem. There's a, a drug comes in from China called spice. Yeah, you bet. Y'all better watch that shit. That is, that that came through here. 
and you don't know what's in it. It's just a lot of chemicals. People have been, man, people died. Hundreds and, I mean, probably thousands died off of that spice shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bad shit, man. There's no, you don't know what's in it. Now they're doing that, that fentanyl laced pills. Like people want a, a Oxycontin or a Vicodin or something and it's laced with, uh, fentanyl. And it, they, they, fucking dogs, man. The, uh, fentanyl, they, they put so much on there, people will OD. Shut the f- Alright, he's, he's dealing with these dogs. Yeah, man, there's a, there's a fentanyl problem in the States, isn't it? Not, there's not, well, there's a heroin mower over here. Um, I know a couple of, I know a couple of people who are former heroin addicts as well who've, who've gone through the methadone program and then come off methadone, usually through some kind of yoga or just staying totally clean and yoga and keep fit and, and all of that. You still there? Sorry about that, man. A fucking phone call came in and. Now you're fine, man. Don't worry. I didn't even remember calling the fucking doctor yesterday. I must have called him for something. All right. <laughs> but uh, what was it? Oh, that fentanyl. The uh, yeah, that fentanyl is so strong and and powerful like, that they're putting on that shit. Those people take one pill and they're dead. Over here. That's what's happening here in the States. Yeah, it, that shit coming over here from China. And it's it's laced with all that fucking fentanyl, man. And these kids are fucking just dying. Dropping dead. Yeah, you don't know what the fuck. You can't see it. You can't test it. You're just going on the the, the drug dealer's fucking word, you know. That guy's not gonna fucking try it. Cause he's, he'll fucking die. I mean, it's, it's bad. And that spice shit is fucking bad too. That shit'll make you go crazy. Yeah, it does. And I, it's, uh, I know from the kitchen, there's people up there that are, that are taking it. They take their clothes off running around fucking naked and they don't even know what the fuck they're doing no it's uh, it's it's, it is bad like it is bad you can tell you know straight away when people a lot of the people at the soup kitchen are are kind of managing and and they've got their own space but when they when the guys come in who are taking spice you know straight away oh fuck yeah they're weirded they're weirded out man it's like they're on a bad trip of fucking acid. Yeah. LSD, you know, they're they're fucked up. I'm glad I don't fuck with shit like that. I mean, I'll smoke a little weed here and there, but that's as far as I go. Yeah, I'm the same. I used to used to share a flat with, with people who were smoking weed at the weekend, and I would I would hang out with them a little bit, but that's a, that's about my limit. I'm not. I'm more of an alcohol man than I am a drugs man. Yeah, that, myself, I fucking, I drink. I'm a drinker. And, uh, I mean, when I was young, I I used to fuck with, you know, heavy shit. But I haven't fucked with that shit in over 30 years. Good for you, man. Yeah, f- fuck that shit. Little weed here and there it helps helps with the pain and the weed they have nowadays is so fucking it's weird. You know when uh we're around the same age, I got to guess. And when I was a kid growing up, weed was weed. You know, you just got some weed. Now there's fucking 
strains of weed and this and that kind of weed and they do this and fuck they they they've got they've made it into a science of fucking weed oh yeah it's all super strains now as well isn't it no yeah way. it's fucking crazy i couldn't believe that shit man I could not believe that because I didn't smoke either for years and years, decades. I didn't smoke, and I smoked again. And I was, I was high. It was good weed too. It doesn't make you paranoid or nothing. It takes your pain away. You know, back. I got a fucked up back, and I'm cool and mellow, but my. My fucking dickhead doctor, my pain control doctor. Oh, let me follow you. I thought I had followed you. There we go. My dickhead pain doctor doesn't want me. He doesn't allow people to smoke weed. He won't see you if you if you smoke weed. So I have to quit every month for a little while and let the weed go out. I can smoke up to two weeks before I have to take my piss test. Right. And then I, and I'll pass. I don't know how I do that. I, I don't know. My body's weird. It must metabolize it quickly or something. But I pass it, man. But that, those strains of weed, that, that tripped me out, man. I said, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah, it's, you've got to have your wits about you, or even on, even with weed these days. Yeah, you do. <clears throat> you get a hold of some strong ass weed, and fuck, you'd be wasted. Yeah. Um, all right, we've just got to the hour mark, Cody. So I'm I'm gonna close down and go and say hello to the old man's podcast. I think. All right. All right, radio. It was good to talk to you. You take care of yourself and take care of them homeless folks for it. Right, will do, man. You'd be well. All right, yourself. Bye. Bye.